Ruth, chapter 4, uh, verses 13 to 17 today. We're uh, getting near uh, the end of the, the message today. And um, uh, you can turn to that. There's Bibles under the front of the seat if you uh, don't have one. And those are certainly there for any who don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a Bible. You can uh, take one of those as our gift to you. Um, and uh, we just believe that it's important that you be reading the Word of God. And so um, if you don't have a Bible... Um, Please take one from us. Uh, Ruth uh, chapter 4, uh, we'll get to it in a, in a couple moments. Uh, the, the topic of where we're going today is the hand of the Lord in my happiness. And it's hard not to um, imagine Ruth now or Naomi at this point with a smile from ear to ear on her face. Uh, we wonder who would have ever thought that Naomi would have made it to this day. She held in her arms a little grandson. And I've been fascinated to see most of the pictures, all of the pictures, with Kathy holding the new grandson with this beaming face uh, of just great joy and satisfaction of having a little grandson to hold. And as we've been reflecting on this story, we are beginning to realize that God is, in fact, turning Naomi's mourning into joy. That God is, in fact, turning more, uh, uh, Naomi's emptiness into fullness. And if you were listening to that song that we've been singing a few weeks in a row now by William Cowper, um, uh, there's a couple lines in there. It says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In other words, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Another uh, line in one of the song or verses was, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And we're beginning to see that now in the life of Naomi as that bitter bud is turning into this beautiful flower as the frowning providence is now turning into a smiling face. See, her daughter-in-law has a husband. Her daughter-in-law has conceived. Her daughter-in-law has born a son. Naomi is surrounded by family and friends now. Naomi has a grandson to, to cradle and hold in her lap. Naomi's present and her future is now secure. Uh, Naomi uh, is hope uh, and, it, and it's a strong hope, and it's a hope not for the, only the present, but for the future. And so we really do see the hand of the Lord in Naomi's happiness. And we're going to look at uh, four reasons why I think there's happiness in Naomi's life. And we're going to get to them, but I just want to uh, just quickly go through the text first to make a couple comments before we look at the applications of the happiness. And so the first one, if you've got your, your Bible open there in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, when we get to this point in this story, we find that the story has begun with Naomi's losses, um, it, it, and it ends with her gains. The story has begun with the death of her husband and her two sons, and it now ends with the birth of this new grandson. The story had begun with the spotlight on Naomi, and now it ends with the spotlight on Naomi. And so God is beginning to focus us in again and zero us in on the circumstances of Naomi. And so verse 13, we're told the narrator says, And Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This one verse describes the events of an entire year. And what an amazing year it was. What an amazing display of the providence of God and the goodness of God to Naomi and to Boaz and to Ruth. Now there is a wife. There is a conception. There is a son. Truly the hand of the Lord is in their happiness. And what an exaltation of Ruth. Here she came from Moab as a foreigner. 
She went into the field as the lowliest of servants. She became a maidservant, and now she is a wife. As Peter tells us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, that at the proper time, he might exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's an amazing illustration of that truth and of that verse that as we humble ourselves before God, in his time, he will exalt us and he will raise us up. Who would have thought that this is how the story would have ended? But God has been in the words and the actions of these individuals working his purposes for his glory. We come to verses 14 and 15 and there we find that the women say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, and she has given birth to him. You notice right away in there just this tone of thanksgiving. Blessed be the Lord. Praise God for his kindness. Praise God for his goodness. Naomi, it's like they're saying, Naomi, do you see what God has done for you? Do you see how God has blessed you? Do you see how God has provided a redeemer for you? And, 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 and his name is going to be renowned over all of Israel. Little did they know exactly what that meant. And he has given you renewed hope. He is a restorer of your life. He has given your life back to you. He has provided for your present needs. You now have a kinsman redeemer, one who will feed you, one who will sustain you. Your emotional well-being is, 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 is back to a, a good equilibrium. And God has secured your, uh, secured your future because this child will be the nourisher of your old age. And through this child, hope has been restored to you. You have no need to worry about physical provision any longer. And that's not all, Naomi. Look at your daughter-in-law. What love, what value, what worth. Naomi, do you see what God has done for you? And we get to this point and we wonder, and I've often thought of this at the book of Job. As, as the, the book of Job begins with all his losses and ends with God restoring his losses. And I think, well, so what? And I say that carefully because sometimes we have to remember that God's blessing in our present does not negate the past and the pain and the suffering that we've gone on in the past. One person wrote, and I think it's helpful for us to hear this, while Naomi experiences this fullness, and there is a fullness in her life now, we should not be oblivious to the dark night through which she has come. This blessing of this child is a real and glorious blessing, but it is not meant to be a substitute for what she has lost. We need to be as realistic as the author of Ruth. Whatever interim blessing and fullness we experience as the community of God's people, there will always be a sense, or there will always be in this world, a sense of incompleteness and of not yetness. We lo- lose the most precious possessions in our lives, and this world can, nothing in this world can ever take their place. And I think we need to see that in this story of, of Naomi. God is not trying to say to her, Naomi, just forget the past now. Forget the pain. Forget the grief. No, that's not what God ever tells us to do. But God, in the midst of our pain and our grief, blesses us and provides us with hope and provides us with encouragement and even provides us with a context through which to understand our past grief and our pain. 
We come to 4.16 and we find there this beautiful response of a grandmother. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse or cared for him. We should read nothing more into this verse other than this is the picture of a loving, natural reaction of a grandmother who takes her grandson and holds him on her lap. It's just a beautiful picture of contentment. It's a beautiful picture of God's provision for them. And then verse 17 And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's not uh, meant to say that it was the women of the town that named this little baby. That's the responsibility of the father and of the mother. But what they are saying is that they acknowledged his name in the company of others. They said, and Naomi has a son, and his name is Obed. It's just like Kathy and I saying, we have a grandson, and his name is Axel. We're not naming him, we're acknowledging his name. And so they are naming or acknowledging the name of this son, that Naomi, or that Naomi is holding Obed. But you notice something here, that suddenly we have jumped ahead three generations. We have gone from, from Boaz to Obed to Jesse and now to David. And it's an amazing reality that the, the book of Ruth doesn't just end as a wonderful story of everything working out. It's a story that ends with the purpose of God being displayed not only in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but for generation to come. And we will see next week that that looks even farther ahead than King David to the very coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a, it's almost like this amazing vista is being opened up to us to see the amazing ways of God. And so here at the end of this paragraph, we are given a list of people who have not even lived yet, but who will be profoundly influenced by the events that have just been described in the story of Ruth. And we learn that the significance of what God has been doing in their lives lies beyond even their own lifetime. We're so impatient. We're so wanting God to demonstrate what he's doing for us now. But beloved, God may be working through you for a generation to come or two or three or four generations down the road. Your good is the good of somebody that you may never meet this side of eternity. Suddenly we realize that all along something far greater has been in the offing than we could ever imagine. That God was not only plotting for the temporal blessings of a few people in Jerusalem, but he was preparing for the coming of the greatest king that Israel would ever know, King David. And as the scripture said on the screen this morning, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God's plan is often worked out over years and decades and centuries. God works his plan out through our pain and sorrow. And sometimes that restoration process seems slow from a human standpoint. But gradually and carefully and with great precision, God is working out his plan. God is in control of life and death and everything in between it. And he often accomplishes his plan of restoration and and his, his path of restoration in ways that we would never expect. And so Ruth is a story that you have to read to the very end. It's like you have to read the credits. And verses 17 to verse 22 are like the credits in the story of the book of Naomi. And how often do we come to lists of names and we skip over them in our reading and our devotion. Uh, Kath and I were at a 
a movie a number of months ago, and in the movie, there was a lot of animals that were involved in this movie, and it appeared that some of them might have been hurt uh, in, 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 in the filming of this movie. And so we got to the end of the movie, and Kathy said, I want to stay for the credits to make sure that um, no animals were hurt. I said, oh, who cares? Let's just go. <laughs> a really nice, loving husband. And um, so I got up and I went and I stood at the back of the theater and Kath and I were, were literally, there was three people left in the theater. But she was watching the credits and sure enough, the second to last credit was no animals were hurt in the filming of this movie. We had to stay to the very end to see how it worked out. Well, it's the same in this story of Ruth that we need to get to next week to see the fullness and the truth of what God has been doing in this life of this little family. So now, what are some of the applications? There's four areas in which I see from this text that God has um, um, brought Naomi into incredible happiness. The first thing I want to remind us of this morning is that marriage matters. Marriage matters. Naomi had found great happiness in the marriage of Ruth and, 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 and Boaz. Why? Because she understood that marriage is God's institution. She understood that, that God had established marriage from the very beginning for the well-being of man and women. Marriage is not something we thought up. It's not something that some culture designed somewhere. Marriage is something that comes to us from the very hand of God. In the beginning of the garden, after God had created everything, and he, he, he observed it, time after time he said, it was good, it was good, it was was good. But when he created man, he looked at man, and it's the first time that he said it wasn't good. And he, not because man wasn't good, but, but it was not good that man was alone. And so God created Eve out of Adam so that that aloneness could be dealt with. And we realize that as we read in Genesis, and we'll come to it, that, that marriage is the only context for sexual relations. We realize that marriage is the only context for having children. We realize as we get to the New Testament that marriage is to be a visible reality of an invisible spiritual reality. The connection or the union of Christ and the church and the church to Christ. And this order is reflected in Ruth. There is an intentional here, I think, emphasis on marriage and how it is to be part of our culture. In Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does that tell us? How does that help us understand God's way? Well, I think it shows us a few things. First, it says marriage is a public act. And around that, around the world today, we see that. That marriage is to be a celebration. That marriage is to be a public event. That marriage is to be a time when it's blessed by families. It's blessed by friends. It's blessed by the community. And so a man is to leave his father and wife and to be joined to his wife. That is a public ceremony. It's a public thing that takes place. And we see that woven throughout Scripture. I think the second thing that we see about marriage from Genesis 2.24 is that marriage precedes becoming one flesh. We've really got this mixed up today, and our culture is completely flipping this upside down to our pain and to our hurts. That the Bible clearly says that you shall leave your father and mother, and then you cleave to your wife, and then you become one flesh. 
And there are so many warnings through Scripture. And they're not just warnings to act as a club over our head, loved ones. They're warnings that are given for our good and for our benefit because God has made us. God has designed us. And he knows how best to provide for our happiness. And so marriage is to precede the becoming of one flesh. We also realize that marriage is to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And we find that also woven through scripture. That it's, that is God's design for it. And there's teaching about, about divorce. There's teaching about adultery. There's teaching about God's creational intention for a married couple. And is, is that God has always intended that their marriage be permanent until death should come in and separate that bond. And so we find that taught in the Bible. And we find that marriage is the context for children. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's within the context of marriage that families are to um, happen. It's in the context of marriage that children are to be brought into this world and to understand all the necessary relationships that they will need as adults when they go out into the world. We see this so clearly in chapter 4, verse 13, this order. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, marriage. He went into her sexual relations, and she bore a son, children. Loved ones, there is great blessing that flows when we follow God's design for our lives. Marriage is from God. Marriage is God's gift to us. Guard it. Honor it. Protect it. Stand up for it. Defend it. It makes a difference to the happiness of men and women. And there are significant consequences when we step outside of the bounds of marriage. Whether it's, whether it's we break our marriage bonds or we get involved in sexual activity before marriage, there is great emotional pain that can come with, with sexual immorality. There is the potential of pregnancies outside of marriage. There are children who are married by un, or raised by unmarried teenagers. There are children that are raised without fathers or mother. There are the lingering marital problems that result from premarital intercourse. There is the trauma of adultery. There is the spiritual reality of the displeasure of God. There's the, 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 the sense of shame and guilt that actually comes when we sin against God and we offend God's direction for us. Shame and guilt are God's gift to us, loved ones. They're not some psychological thing that we ought to get rid of from our lives. Shame and guilt are a gift from God. Be thankful for them. And understand that God is not mocked. God is not deceived. Do not fool yourselves and think that we can live outside of God's boundaries and he won't notice and it doesn't matter. I was reading a couple passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he, then he goes on and what, what's, what's unrighteousness? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Loved ones, when you step outside the boundaries of God, you walk under the wrath of God. 
And then there's the, the unique consequences of sexual sin. And I can only read the scripture. I don't have time this morning to, to explain it other than to just read it. And in Paul, a little later, says, flee sexual immorality. That's any sexual relations outside of the marriage relationship. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But listen carefully to this. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something that, 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 it's not that sexual sin is worse than any other sin or the worst sin that, can, can, that can, we can ever do. But there is something about it that affects our soulishness. There is real destruction that we do to ourselves. And so what's the consequences if we've stepped outside the boundaries of marriage? The reality is we do stand before God guilty. We stand before God as sinners. Because we've sinned against not only others, but we've sinned against God. And it's outright rebellion against God. And it doesn't surprise me that you would be miserable or that you wouldn't find happiness or life would be tough. And it's not the last word though, is it? Because I want you to know that with God there is grace and there is mercy. That with God there is forgiveness of sins. That God is full of lavishness. That he will lavish his grace upon you. That he is rich in mercy. That all who are willing to come to him, he will forgive openly. All who come to him in Christ, God will forgive. There is a wideness in his forgiveness. There is a greatness to his mercy. There is a lavishness to his grace. God is a God who is able to restore the years that the locust have eaten. God is the one who is able to bring beauty from ashes. And how does this happen? Well, the first is simply stop. Stop. If you're involved in sexual immorality or adultery, just stop. Today you need to stop sinning and God is able to come into your life and to break that grip and to break that hold and to great, break that power that that sin has over you. And he, is, he will enable you to flee sexual immorality. So one of the first things we say is simply, God help me. It's not that there's no pleasure in sin for a moment. It's not that there's no power in sin. But God says, no, that's not the way I've designed you. So we stop and then we turn. We turn back to God. We repent before God. And repentance doesn't just mean saying I'm sorry. Repentance means I'm sorry and I'm not going to continue in the way that I was walking. It means to turn around and go the other way. And so we need to let God's word resonate in our hearts. He says, some of you were like this. The, the passage that I read, who engaged in sexual immorality and adultery and greed. But then he goes on in a verse or two later and he says, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And so we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cleanse me, wash me, make me pure in your sight. And God, through Christ, is able to do that for you. We turn to Christ and we realize that Christ has borne the punishment for our sin. That Christ has borne the shame and the guilt for our sin. And that when we are forgiven, he takes our sin and he throws it behind his back. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. He takes his eraser and he blots it off the story of our life. And so we stop. And we turn, and then we seek forgiveness. We seek forgiveness of the individuals that we've sinned against, and we seek forgiveness of God. And where possible, and where appropriate, 
We confess our sins to those that we have offended and we seek their forgiveness and we say, will you forgive me because I have sinned against you and I have sinned against heaven. And then we sin no more and we determine to walk in God's ways. And there's this amazing scripture, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, so you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Say, God, my body is yours. There's great hope if we've strayed outside the boundaries of God. There is no happiness if we stay outside the boundaries of God. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Beautiful words. To the man disciplined by the Corinthian church, he he challenges the congregation, forgive them and comfort him. Uh, David once prayed, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could ever stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. Do you know that? That if you've strayed from God and you come back to him, it's not so, Willie, is there enough to go around? Am I going to be forgiven of everything? There is plentiful provision. For any and every sin, there is redemption provided in Christ. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Beloved, marriage matters. Marriage is a gift from a loving and a gracious God. And I call us and I call you to stay within the boundaries that God has established for relations between a man and a woman. The second thing that I see from this text and by way of application I want to urge you to live out community and to practice encouragement. To live out community and practice encouragement. I think Naomi found great happiness in and through the covenant community. I was intrigued by uh, the three scenes that describe community in this book of Ruth. They paint a picture of the community of God at work. They paint a picture of the community of God standing by their own. They describe the vital role of encouragement and what it plays in the family of God. And they illustrate that this is the role of everyone. And I am so encouraged as I watch you as a congregation intermingle with one another, care for one another, not only here but outside of these walls. And I want to encourage you to do it even more, to increase in what you do. And I want to look at a couple of passages First, in Ruth chapter 1, 19 to 20, we find there that first of all, this is the first evidence of community. That as Naomi and, and Ruth come back into Bethlehem, when they came to Bethlehem, the, the whole town was stirred because of them. And I want to stop there for a moment. The whole town was stirred because, because of them. The town noticed them. When they came in to that little city and entered into those gates, people recognized there's somebody new here. And and they didn't know that it was Naomi right off, but they knew that there were visitors in the town. I want to pull that a little towards us. Are you and I aware when a new person walks into our midst here? Are you aware of somebody who's sitting in front of you or beside you that you've never seen yet? 
Are we aware of these kind of incidents? It can be a very lonely thing to walk into a group of people like this, to come from another church, another community, or just to walk in here and not ever have been in a church, and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, you don't know what to say. It can be a very lonely thing. For one reason or another, some people can get to know others within weeks. On the other hand, I've known people who have attended for months and say, this is the loneliest place that I have ever been. Loved ones, we need to be those who look for others, to even today look around you. Is there a face that you don't know? Is there a person that you've never met? Introduce yourself to them. Say, I've not seen you before. I'm so-and-so. I'd like to meet you. If you see somebody walking into the foyer and they're kind of looking around and you can tell that they're lost, stop your conversation and go to them and say, hi, I'm Paul. Are you new here? Can I help you with anything? It's great to see you here at the church today. And so we need to be those who have eyes that Notice those who come in amongst us that are new. I said this morning, many of you would know Abe and Hilda Duick. Maybe, uh, maybe not so many in this context, but Abe and Hilda are charter members of this church. And, and if you came to this church up until a few years ago, and in fact they still do it today, there was a chance you have been in their home for lunch or they have taken you out for coffee. They just had this gift and this eye of seeing new people and saying, would you come to my house? Would you have lunch with us? Can we get together for coffee? And I know that's a gift of hospitality, but each one of us needs to develop eyes to see those people that walk into our congregation late and leave early. And just say, I'd like to introduce you to my, I'd like to introduce myself to you. Recognize the new people. That's what community does. Catch up with them, notice them. But secondly, as they then gather around Naomi, and obviously some of the women must have gone to Naomi and Ruth and said hi, and before that word had even come out of their mouth, Naomi just spewed her anger and her frustration with God. And you notice what there is not? There's no dialogue. They just sat and listened to Naomi spew her pain and her hurt and her sorrow. No one responded to her difficult outburst. The Almighty has brought calamity upon you. Well, that's because you did this, Naomi, and that's because you weren't there. And that, No, they were silent before Naomi. There was no condemnation. There was no advice. There was just giving her the room to vent. The story of Job is an amazing story. At the beginning of the, the first two chapters, we, we read how the hand of the Lord goes out against Job, and he loses family, he loses his property, he loses his servant, he loses his wealth, he loses his health, he loses everything, and he's absolutely despondent. And when Job's three friends heard of all this and the evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Nahamite, and they made an appointment together to come and to show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw his suffering was great. And then they opened their mouths. And the rest of the story of Job is how they made accusations and they said wrong things and how their theology was messed up. 
And one of the most fearful verses that I have as a pastor comes at the end. And God spoke it to these three men. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, which were bringing Job back into restoration and wholeness, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken what is right as my servant Job has. Loved ones, sometimes silence is all right. Sometimes silence is the right thing. If you know somebody that's gone through tremendous trauma or grief, there's nothing wrong to going over to their house or to going to the hospital, sitting in their room for 20 minutes and not saying a word and then leaving. Just your very presence, the very presence of God through you in that setting is comfort, is sympathy, is empathy. Don't be uncomfortable with silence. Fight the urge sometimes to speak and to make sense of and to explain. As we see in the life of Naomi, it took 10 or 12 years for the fullness of what God had done in her life to develop and to unfold. And so they sat silently with Naomi. But then we jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 13. Or 4.14, and then they speak to Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, now is the time that they speak. And as they speak, it's these amazing words of encouragement as they broaden Naomi's horizons now. And they begin with blessing the Lord and saying, Naomi, look at what God has done to you. And they prayed, look at your little boy. May he be famous. May his renown be known in all of Israel. May he give you hope and life. May he support you in your old age. And Naomi, look at what God has done for you. Look at that child you hold. Look at that daughter-in-law that's by your side. Look at her great love for you. Consider her great worth to you. Naomi, do you see all that God has done for you? Bless the Lord, Naomi, for everything that he's done for you. Together they embrace now the good things that God had done to her life. And then the men... In a few verses earlier, in chapter 11 to 12, gather around Boaz, and and they say to Boaz, Boaz, you've done well. Boaz, God is pleased with you. Boaz, we hope that God will continue to bless you, and may your name, your renown grow in this little city of Bethlehem. They came alongside, and they encouraged. We need to do that. If you see a a little boy who's out in the hallway and an older couple walks by them and he stops and he pulls to the side and lets them walk by, go up and say, that was such a great thing you do to show respect and to to get out of the way of that couple. When you see, you hear about a young person who has had a tough week at school in a biology class, class but stood up for their faith in that class. If you hear about that, take him aside and say, that was so good to hear the way that you stood and it must have been tough, but I will pray for you for the next couple of weeks that the Lord will help you in that class. Or when you know of a man or a woman who has had to make a difficult decision at their, at their job and their work might be threatened because of their ethical stand, come alongside of them and say, may the God bless you for your integrity. Stand to your truth. God will honor you. Don't give in. Don't give up. See, we need to encourage integrity. We need to encourage right actions. We need to encourage faithfulness. We need to point out the good things that God is doing in one another's lives. We need this in our church. Look around you this morning. This is your family. This is your community. These are the people that need you. You are needed by them, and they are needed by you. Comfort and encourage one another in the Lord. Count your blessings together. Name them one by one. See how many things that God has done for you. Oh, we need to be people who understand 
the importance of community and encourage and comfort one another. The third thing that I see in this passage is the, the encouragement to prayer, to be men and women of prayer. It again has struck me as I've gone through this book of Ruth how prayer is littered everywhere. There is this sense of constant communion and connection with God. And some of these answers of prayer came immediately and others of them came over months and some of them came over years and some of them weren't answered until centuries later. Loved ones, be patient in your praying. Be persistent in your praying. Don't lose hope in your praying. Know that God may answer you today or he may answer you at the end of the week or he may answer you at the end of the year or he may answer you on your dying, with your dying breath or he may answer your prayer when you are in heaven and looking down on this world. But God answers prayer. I believe Boaz must have been praying for a wife. Now he has Ruth. They had been praying that a child would be born and there is Obed. Is that right, Obed? Yeah. They were praying that his fame would be established. Little did they know that three generations later, the fame would be seen in King David. They had been praying, no doubt, and and Naomi had been praying that her mourning would be turned to joy, and it was. That her emptiness would become fullness, and it was. That her future would be secured, and it was. That her hope that was lost would be restored, and it was. We find in, in 4.13, but that's an answer to 411, the prayer that they pray there. God, would, would the womb of, 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 of Ruth be like Rachel and Leah? Would you open it? And God opened her womb and she had a child. And then we see in verse 14 or 17b, um, David is an answer to the prayer that this young child would be renowned in Israel. Boaz in verse 14 is the answer to the prayer of both himself and of uh, Naomi earlier that, that, um, that Ruth would find a, a, a home and rest in the house of her husband. Loved ones, God is answering prayer. God is a God who hears your prayers. He is the living God. He is the God who has made heaven and earth. He is the God who has the power to act on our behalf for our good and for his glory. Don't lose hope. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. Persist. God hears and answers. And then the final thing, I want to encourage you and challenge you to acknowledge the blessing of God. To learn to acknowledge the blessing of God. I think there is great happiness that comes to our life when our eyes are opened to actually see the hand of God at work in them. We need to learn to bless God together. That means to speak words of praise, to speak words of benediction, to acknowledge the hand of the Lord in our comings and our goings. It, it, it means to learn to recognize the hand of the Lord in our day in and day out um, life. It's like um, you might um, uh, say to somebody, you know, this week I was uh, working really hard on on getting a job, and I had a great resume, and I had a great education, and I was, uh, you know, there were five people that were applying for the job, and I got it, and it was great to get the job. Or another way you would say it is all of those same things. I had a great resume. I was fifth in the job, great education experience. And bless God, he opened the door, and I got the job. There's a difference. See, one 
tends to see that all the glory goes to us. All the glory goes to man. The other is a way of saying, and God is involved in your life. And God is behind that job. And God is behind that appointment. And God is behind that friend. And to, to bless the Lord simply means that as we talk, there are times we say, bless God that he got you that job. Thank God for that. And so when we learn to bless God together, what we are doing is we are verbalizing and acknowledging the hand of the Lord in our day-to-day lives. We see that woven throughout this book five times. May the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless them. Here, may the Lord bless you, Naomi. In your growth groups, when you go for coffee, when you're sitting with your family, and somebody talks about something, or when your children raises something up, say, bless the Lord for that, or praise God. Isn't God good? Didn't, didn't God do, do great in your life to be able to work that out for you? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Recognize the hand of the Lord in your happiness. The hand of, your Lord, or the, hand of the Lord, loved ones, in our happiness has a great deal to do with how we live. And I, I'm torn because I should use the word joy, but joy and happiness are very different. But there is great joy in marriage. There is great joy in community. There is great joy in answered prayer. There is great joy in seeing ever more clearly the hand of God in your life. 